how many of you in this room love unexpected things? That's what I figured. Um, so, all right, so if we're ever out to eat for your birthday, I will not tell the waiters that it's your birthday and make you sit on the saddle or, you know, wear the sombrero and sing that birthday song, you know. Now, we do like some unexpected things, you know, when you get that rebate that you sent off like 12 weeks ago and totally forgot about and you get back or, you know, when a long-lost friend calls and you get to reconnect and hear about what God's been doing. And, you know, we, we like those kind of unexpected things. What we don't really like, though, is the unexpected call from the doctor when the test results didn't come out the way we wanted. That unexpected bill that was a lot higher than we thought it was going to be. That unexpected fight that you had with your spouse in the car on the way to church. Yeah? That unexpected call you got from your son or your daughter about something that they've gotten into that you really wish they hadn't. Life is full of unexpected circumstances. And it can be hard for us to roll with the punches. I'm a guy that I like routine. I really do. I I like having certain things at certain times. I I like doing some different stuff, but spontaneous is kind of hard for me sometimes. That's why it makes it really hard when the God that I've known and been worshiping and trying to follow for the last 28 years does unexpected things. Now, I think if we were honest with each other, I think we would say, I I know that God is bigger than me and God does different stuff and God works differently. But but at the same time, let's be honest. I mean, I'm I'm a pastor, right? So I've got God pretty well figured out, right? I mean, I went to Bible college. I went off to, to liberal universities. I've, I've got my bachelor's in biblical studies. I've got a master's. I'm getting ready to start a doctoral program in the fall. I have got God pretty well nailed down. And every time I think that, God blows up the box that I try to put him in. Now, it's great when that unexpected thing is that God unexpectedly heals somebody that got a diagnosis that was terminal. That's awesome. Or an unexpected job opens up for somebody who you know has been struggling and been seeking the Lord. Those are great times when God works in unexpected ways. But here's my question. How do we handle it when God works in unexpected ways that we don't like? Things that, that confuse us, things that, and, and don't be too quick, as I heard somebody talking about this week, don't be too quick to punt to Romans 8.28. Say, oh yeah, well, we know God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, which is true. But are you honest enough this morning to say that there are times when God does things that are unexpected and I just don't like it? I don't get it. I don't see how God could possibly do this. Well, as we look at what happened on Palm Sunday, What we're going to find is that Jesus' arrival in many ways was incredibly unexpected. My challenge to you this morning as you look through the the different unexpected things that Jesus did that day is to look at who God is and who you think he is, right? Who you've tried to make him to be. We make God in our own image and try to make him like us. But the reality is we're made in his image and he's so much bigger, so much better, so much more unexpected than we could ever imagine. So my challenge this morning is if you're here today or if you're watching online and you've not yet received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you've not followed him, you've had questions about him, and you said, I just wish I could get God figured out before I moved, then my prayer is that today as you figure out that God's bigger than that, that you'll surrender to the God who loves you enough to do what he does today. My prayer today, though, is if you're here and you're a believer, you're following Jesus as as your Savior and Lord, my prayer is that you'll let him blow up the box a little bit to remind you of how much better he is than you ever could imagine. 
And we're going to see that here in Luke chapter 19. Now, we've been studying uh, recently through the book of Acts, right? We've been seeing that there's a uh, the story of the apostles and what happened with the early church as they started following Jesus' command to go out into all the nations and to preach the gospel. That's the book of Acts. Well, that's the second book that's written by this man that we know as Luke. So we're looking back at his first work today where he records about Jesus' earthly ministry. We're getting close to the end of the book here in Luke chapter 19. But as we do, we're finding what's called the triumphal entry, right? The triumphal entry, if you've got a heading in your Bible, that's probably what it says. And it's interesting, as we're going to see this this morning, that's almost an ironic term for what takes place. Because what we're going to see is Jesus riding into Jerusalem, being almost acknowledged as the Messiah he should be, but something's just not right. So as we go through it this morning, I I do just want to, to challenge you to let God blow up your box of who he is, to show you that he is an unexpectedly good God. I want you to recapture some of the wonder you first had when you understood how God works. So to do that, let's understand three different characteristics that are unexpected about Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem that day. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through the text a little piece at a time. So the first thing that we see as we're walking through the text here in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, by the way, is that Jesus arrived in an unexpected way. Jesus arrived in an unexpected way. Read with me verses 28 through 40. Actually, yeah, we won't go. Yeah, we'll go that far. All right. When he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus has been teaching and he's gone through some things. So he's heading up to Jerusalem. This is the last time in the book that Luke is going to talk about Jesus going somewhere because this is going to be where Jesus' earthly ministry concludes. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. Okay, now, how would you feel about this, right? Like Jesus tells you, hey, guys, y'all two go into town and there's gonna be a a young donkey sitting there. Nobody's ever ridden on it. Um, Go get it for me. And if anybody asks, say, yeah, Jesus needs it. Does that feel weird to you? Like from the very beginning, this is unexpected. But here's what happens. Look, verse 32 So then they were sent, left, and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, "Uh, why are you untying the donkey? Legitimate question, right? I mean, if I've got something that I own and you're messing with it and I don't know who you are, I'm gonna ask you why. So how do they respond? Well, the Lord needs it, verse 34, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. We know nothing about who owned the donkey. We know nothing about the pedigree of the donkey. We know nothing about this thing. We just know that Jesus said, go get it, and they did. And they said, why are you taking it? Jesus needs it. Okay, that was enough. God's already working in an unexpected way. Well, it gets more interesting from there. As he was going about, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now they came to the path down to the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Now that's a very important understanding right there. They're praising God for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Now, to understand what's going on here, you have to understand what God has been doing over the last thousand or so years. 
In fact, actually, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you find God making a promise that one day he would send someone to undo what we did through sin. He made that promise back in Genesis, and then he begins to flesh that promise out throughout what we see as the Old Testament. Over the years, he starts sending prophets who start saying there's this person who comes to be called the Messiah or the Christ. Now, in case you've ever heard somebody talk about Jesus Christ or we're Christians, that's coming from the Greek version of the word Messiah, which is the Hebrew word that means anointed, okay? So in Greek, it means uh, it's the word Christ. In Hebrew, it's the word Messiah, roughly, um, That's God's anointed one. It would have been used of a priest. It would have been used of a king. But throughout the prophets, you start realizing that there's something unique about this one particular guy who is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the one that's going to come and, uh, to borrow Tolkien's phrase, will make the sad things come untrue. They're looking for him to come. As you read through the prophets, you see that he's going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to set up an earthly kingdom and Jerusalem is going to become the capital of the world. And as he does, they're going to put everybody else in their place. Now, remember at this time, by the way, they're being oppressed by the Romans, which was not a fun thing. They were being taxed. They were under Roman authority. They were having to put up with all kinds of Roman things that they didn't like dealing with. So this all of a sudden has built to the point where it sounds really good. They knew that the Messiah would come and he would do lots of miracles and demonstrate God's power on earth. So they see Jesus and he's been teaching and he's been preaching and that's what he's doing, right? He's doing these miracles. He's raising people from the dead even. So they're like, wait a second. He's coming into Jerusalem. He, he, this must be the guy. And here's the thing, they're right. But there's a part of the prophecies about the Messiah that they kind of overlook. Sometimes they applied it to the nation as a whole and not to this individual, but there were prophecies like we find in the latter chapters of Isaiah, especially like Isaiah 53, that said that this Messiah, when he came, would come as a suffering servant. So what happens? Well, this day they've been seeing Jesus going around throughout Israel doing all kinds of signs and miracles and wonders and all kinds of great things have been taking place through him all over the countryside. Now he's coming into Jerusalem. They realize this is it. This is the guy. They'd seen all the miracles and they're like, he's coming in. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's why, by the way, if you saw the kids wandering around with branches, it's not that we like kids to have swords to be able to smack people with, in, although Holly says yes. Um, by the By the way, Holly did not clear with me giving those out in Sunday school. So for any parents who are having to deal with that, that was not me, okay? Um, Blame Holly. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) So as we're looking at this, though, as they're coming in, you see them seeing Jesus coming. He's riding on a donkey. Now, this rings a bell for them. Because, see, there is a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Not just any donkey, but on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy right in front of their eyes. Man, how exciting would that have been? So, so they start taking off their cloaks and laying it down for Jesus to walk on them. So, so it's a, a sign that says, you're my king and I, I'm willing to let you walk all over me. They start, Matthew tells us, they start cutting down palm branches. That's what the sticks were, by the way, in case you're not familiar with church culture and, and that kind of idea. Um, the sticks were little palm branches. 
because people were cutting down palm branches. They were laying them in the road as a symbol. This is our king, and we're welcoming. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's going to set up shop. He's going to kick off the Romans. It's going to be great. Now, for them, they were excited about that. They weren't wrong to do this. Jesus truly was and is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the one that the prophets were speaking of. He is the one who came to make the sad things untrue. He's the one who came to break the power of sin, but it wasn't going to look like they thought it would. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. They didn't understand what Jesus was coming to do. Yes, God had prophesied that this would happen, so the Jews were expecting this kind of entry, but what about you? I mean, when you think about who Jesus is, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is, is God in the flesh, okay? Like, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it, but Jesus is God. How many of you have ever seen a donkey? Okay, you ever been around a donkey? Our neighbors have one now. Uh, uh, I don't know why, but if you know in Cambria, there's uh, this, this little horse that lives in Cambria. If you've ever seen the horse right there on Lucas Street, um, they got a donkey to keep the horse company, I guess. I don't know. I saw it out there the other day. There is nothing noble about a donkey. They're obnoxious. I remember when we were in Zimbabwe one time, I was having to use a cell phone to try to call my wife in America there was a donkey that was some 80, 100 yards away. It had nothing to eat, and it was in a bad mood. So it was just standing over there braying. My wife in America heard the donkey over my cell phone. She said, is that that donkey that's keeping you away? Okay, so donkeys are obnoxious. There's nothing noble about it. And yet when God chose to bring the Messiah into the city that one day he will return to to rule and reign over, he takes this ugly, smelly donkey. How many of you have seen the Disney movie Aladdin? How many of you have seen, especially the live action, the new one, right? Okay, so the new one, who's the genie in the new one? Will Smith, right? If you remember the whole scene, as Aladdin is coming into the, the sultan's palace, he has this big procession that goes in front of him. If you remember the old movie or the new one, they, they had that. But if you've watched the new movie, it's this awesome thing. Will Smith singing. There's dancers with gold chains and all this jewelry. There's peacocks. There's giant elephants. He's throwing gold out left and right as he comes through. That's what you would expect, Right? This is the God of the universe. You'd expect some massive procession going in front of him, declaring who he is. And yet, he's got people, he's on a donkey, they're throwing out their coats and some palm branches. That's not expected. That's not how we would do things, right? I mean, where's this hype team? Where's where's the street team that's been going ahead of him to build hype and hand out merch before they get there, right? I mean, shouldn't we have been selling t-shirts or foam fingers or something? But yet, he's not that kind of king. He has every right to be riding on some massive, noble, white steed or, or riding in in some gilded chariot with these beautiful draft horses pulling it or something. There's, there should be something, but instead, he comes in humbly. You know, for you, maybe that's a problem. For you, humility... That's not okay. I mean, shouldn't God be proud of who he is? He is. He's a jealous God. We'll see that a little bit later. 
But at the same time, he's also such an incredibly tender and gracious God that he'll ride in on a donkey of all things. He's arriving in, to me at least, a very unexpected way. He's God in the flesh riding on a donkey. Are you willing to serve a God who would go to such great lengths to humble himself? Or is that offensive to you? If it's offensive to you, it's offensive in your pride. And that's exactly why you need him. Because see, if Jesus came that humbly, then what do you think we should do as his followers? Be humble, right? By the way, there is a time when Jesus is coming back on a white horse. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to see it. We'll get to that another day. This time, he's coming in, riding on a donkey. By the way, he says there, the Pharisees, they wanted to rebuke his disciples. He answered them and said, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As a kid, I always thought that that meant that like literally the rocks would be like, hey, Jesus, the Messiah. Like, I was like, that's really weird to me. That's not what he meant. He meant that all of creation is filled with the glory of God. Psalm 19.1 talks about the firmament displays his handiwork. When we look out and you see the birds hopping around at the feeder and realize that God takes care of all of them, you see life coming back into the grass, you see the flowers beginning to bud, you you see a, a baby in their new life. All of these things give testimony to the glory of God. So Jesus is saying that even if the whole crowd were silent, just look around. Look around at what he's done as he's healed the lame and the blind and the sick, as he's cast out demons, as he's spoken to the wind and the waves and caused them to cease. That very same God riding on a donkey says, creation itself testifies. There's no keeping anybody silent. It's an unexpected arrival for sure. Now let's think about it for a minute. If you were the king, I mean, it, I get excited when I walk in the house and the kids are excited to see me, right? Come in from a day at work and your kids are happy and they run, give you a hug. That makes me happy. What would it be like to be riding into a city, having people throwing their cloaks out in homage to you, declaring these great things over you? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that just make you puff up a little bit, right? That's what we see that's so unexpected about Jesus' arrival, though. You would expect Jesus to be filled with joy because they're acknowledging him as the Messiah, it seems. But the second thing that we see that's so unexpected about this is that Jesus arrives with an unexpected emotion. Pick up back in verse 41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. Jesus arrived at the city weeping. Why? Saying, if you knew this day, what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. But the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. If you only knew Well, that's unexpected. I mean, this is the closest that Jesus has gotten to having people actually recognize who he is, and yet it breaks his heart. 
He's weeping over this. Why? Well, Bible commentator Warren Wearsby gives us several reasons why Jesus would weep that day. Looking back, he could see that the nation as a whole had missed their opportunity to follow him while he was doing his earthly ministry. He had done signs and wonders and signs and wonders and signs and wonders, and he had taught, and he'd given people opportunity after opportunity to see who he was and to respond by giving him honor and glory and praise as he deserved. But they'd missed it. Looking within their hearts, he saw that this crowd was spiritually blind. That's what he says. They wanted to follow the Messiah that they thought he would be, not the one he truly was. That's a key thing for us, by the way, guys. If you've ever been tempted to say, when somebody says something about God, you say, well, my God would never do that. My God doesn't behave that way. Be very, very careful. Because it could be that you're making God in your image, and it doesn't work that way. That's what they had done. They were looking for Jesus to do more miracles. They were looking for him to cast off Rome, and that's not what he was coming to do. They wanted the stuff. They didn't want him. Is that you too, by the way? Is that why you want to follow Jesus? Is because you hope it'll get you like a membership into the club and you get your 10th burger free, right? Following Jesus for the perks? No, the... That day, the crowd was blind to their need for who he was. Looking around, he saw that the religious activity that they were doing never got below the surface. As we'll see, the temple had become something it never should have been, and the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. The people who should have gotten it wanted him dead. Looking ahead to the future, this is what Jesus is really talking about here. He knew that ultimately their rejection of him would lead to an absolutely horrific siege and destruction of Jerusalem that would take place in about 40 years. In AD 70, the Romans came in and obliterated Jerusalem. 600,000 people died. It was a horrific, horrific time. Jesus knew it was coming. Why? Because they refused to serve Rome like they should? No, because in that day, they did not recognize the time when God visited them. They missed it. So as Jesus comes up, he's weeping. They were ready to, to follow Jesus as long as he was giving out stuff. But when the rubber met the road, the crowds fall away time and time again, fell away, excuse me. See, Jesus had had multiple times in his ministry when things had been going great and he had all kinds of followers and then he'd teach them something difficult like in Luke chapter nine, verses 23 and 24, where he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Guys, I'm afraid that there are many of us and maybe some who are sitting in this room or who are watching online who think because I go to church or because I'm a part of this church family, my name's on a roll somewhere, I went to a Sunday school class, I throw some money in the box when I walk in, because I do those things, I'm right with God and they've never realized that you're just following Jesus for the stuff. You're hoping for the get out of hell free card. You're hoping that you'll get a good day every once in a while because you're following Jesus. And the reality is Jesus is calling you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, which we're gonna see this week how powerful an image that is. And as you deny yourself and you take up your cross, you're dying to who you are and surrendering to who he is. That's what it means to follow Jesus, period, end. I remember there used to be a phrase I heard sometimes when I hear people giving testimonies in church. And I haven't heard it for a lot of years. And I'm glad for that. But some of us, I think, still work for the same mindset where we say, I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was 12, but I didn't really make him my Lord until I was 25. Guys, you can't 
divide Jesus. He is Savior and Lord. You can't trust him to save you from your sins and give you a relationship with God and make you right with him and then later accept him as your Lord in your life. It's not how it works. The people that day were excited because they thought they were going to be a part of this kingdom that would get to overrule the world and they could have been if they had been willing to truly surrender to the God who was there. But they refused. Are you looking at who Jesus is? Are you going to make the same mistake that they made that day? Just following him for the perks? Are you trying to come to Jesus on your own terms? And if you do, you're going to miss him. Now, I'm not a prophet, so I can't tell you that you're going to die or you're going to be destroyed. But I do know at some point you're going to die. And apart from a relationship with Christ, you have no hope of being right with God in this life or the next, period. I know that's serious. But the reality is you need to understand today that's the truth. Now, as an aside, there may be another part of this that trips you up. First off, there there may be the fact that you've put God in a box or you've made him a God of your own imagination. But part of that may also be the idea that Jesus would weep for people who would reject him. Maybe your concept of God goes back to your mom or your dad who you could never please. And you have this picture of God sitting in heaven just ready to smite whoever gets out of line. You're just waiting for him to drop the hammer and and so you follow God out of fear. And guys, there is a fear that we should have of God because he is just, he is righteous. But listen, here's a, a group of people who are literally about to murder Jesus in a matter of days and as he looks at them, his idea, his his heart is motivated by compassion that pours out in tears, not for himself and what he's going to suffer, but because they're going to miss it and it's going to lead to their demise. How good a God is this? Who would look at those who would reject him, although he's done everything conceivable to be able to demonstrate who he is and earn their trust, earn their honor, earn their respect that is rightfully his. They're rejecting that. And it leads Jesus to weep. If you're the one that's sitting around that, that thinks that God isn't really interested in you or that he's always angry and he's just waiting to punish you for something, look at the tear-stained face of Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem and realize that there is a God in heaven who when you surrender to him, who loves you far better, far greater than anything you could ever imagine. Maybe this is where you've boxed God in and said you could never love me like Too much of a screw-up. I've failed way too many times. Have you seen me? And yet, this is the tenderness of the God who saves us, the God we serve, the God who was humble enough to ride on a donkey, the God who came into Jerusalem weeping in an unexpected emotion. That leads us to the final unexpected action that Luke records in the section. That's that Jesus arrived with an unexpected response. Jesus arrived with an unexpected response. What were the people expecting to do? Well, they were expecting him to go in and they were, he's going to start throwing off the Romans, build a military kingdom. He's going to rule over the whole world. But Luke tells us that's not what Jesus does. 
And we saw that when he first got into Jerusalem, he encountered this group of religious leaders who were not pleased. Look back at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees were some of the religious leaders. They were in charge. They knew God's word better than anybody else. And they're sitting there telling God in the flesh what to do. Can I just go ahead and tell you, never tell God what to do. That's not a good place for you to be in. He's God, you're not. Remember that, okay? The Pharisees are looking at Jesus and saying, will you make them stop? Now, it goes on to say that it just gets worse from the rest of the week. We know that either that day or the next, depending on how the gospel writers put it down in verse 45, it says that he went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they couldn't find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they'd heard. Guys, most of us are fortunate enough that living in America in the time we do, no one is actively going to want to kill us. This is unimaginable for me. Like, I've had people angry at me before. I've never had anybody who wants to kill me that I've been aware of. Maybe I have, I don't know. Jesus keeps all week long pointing out that the religious leaders missed it. Time And time again, it was the church-going folks, the one who should know better, who missed Jesus. It wasn't the tax collectors and sinners, as the Bible talks about. It wasn't the drunks. It wasn't the prostitutes. It wasn't the riffraff that put Jesus to death. It was the church leaders who put him to death. Guys, let that be a warning to us to make sure that those of us who sit in these pews, those of us who stand on stage, those of us who God have have walked with Jesus for a long time, make sure that you really are walking with Jesus. One of the scariest things for me as a pastor is that I would stand before God and that anybody who sat in these pews would have never actually been truly saved. You know, I've heard it used before, the idea of, if I sit in my carport and I make car noises, even if I do it all day, every day, that doesn't make me a car, right? I mean, if I sit in my carport going, vroom, 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 I'm not going to be a car no matter how hard I try, right? And see, some of you, you've been coming to church your entire life. You've sat in a pew. You've yet never fully surrendered to Christ. It's been about what you could do. If I try hard enough, if I teach this, if I go this, if I, if I give this, if I'm a part of this, if I do this outreach, if I, if I, if I do this, then, then maybe I can make God happy with me. Guys, that's not how it works. You can never do enough, ever. And the God in heaven who sits in throne loves you so much that he would send his own son to die in your place, to take your sin and to be raised from the grave so that you could have new life, so that you could not, pretend to be a car anymore, but God could transform you into one, if you will. So see, when I'm up here, I'm not doing this because I'm hoping it's going to give me brownie points with God or that this is how I'm going to be saved. I'm doing this because God in his grace and his mercy, as a nine-year-old boy down at Main Street Baptist Church, when it was downtown, I was walking out of a Wednesday night young men's thing for royal ambassadors, walking down the stairs, and God drew me to himself in that moment. 
And when I surrendered to him, when God drew me to himself, he transformed me and made me something that I wasn't. He made me spiritually alive. That's not something I could do. I was dead and God raised me with Christ. He changed me. And the only reason I have the privilege of standing up here and doing what I do is because that's what God called me to do, not because I've earned it, not because I think it's going to get me some kind of special standing with God, but because here in high school, I don't know what's going on with my mic. It's, up, it's on my end, I think. As a senior in high school, I was at a youth camp, and guy, the guy that was up there preaching was talking about people following Jesus to become pastors. And I heard in that moment, not in an audible way, God gripped my heart and said, Sean, that's you. At least for this stage in my life, this is what God's called me to do. Not because I earned it, not because I deserved it. I fought with him. I wanted to be a programmer, and I'd make more money doing it. But the reality is, this was the privilege that God gave me. Why? Because, see, he's this unexpected God. So when God calls you to do things, when God lets you be a part of things, make sure that all of this is going back to a genuine relationship with Christ that's founded on who he is, what he's done on your behalf. Don't miss it, okay? Now, there was an unexpected response for some of us of what Jesus did here. We love the picture of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in one sense because we love the tender, we love the gentle, we love the compassionate side of Christ. We love the miracles, we love the tenderness. We have a harder time sometimes with what he did in the temple right? What's it say he did? Well, it says there in verse 45, he went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. Let me give you a kind of a, a quick picture of what that is. In the temple courts, there were all these booths that had gotten set up and they were selling the items that you would need to be able to, to have the sacrifices you were supposed to have. The only problem was they basically were like the movie theater or an amusement park and you were paying $18 for a Diet Coke. Okay, They were extorting people when they came in. They were charging them exorbitant fees for things that they could buy a lot cheaper outside. And they also had to have special money that you could only use in the temple. So they would have money changers who would exchange it and they used bad exchange rates. So you always lost money on the deal. So people in the very place where God had set his name and the only physical location on earth that God has told us at that point to worship him in And people had turned it into a a business. They were taking advantage of people. They were extorting people. They were distracting people from the worship of the one true God. And what does Jesus do? He comes in and starts flipping tables. He just starts throwing people out. When he did this before, by the way, this is the second time he did it. The the first time he actually braided together a whip and starts driving people out with a homemade whip. Now, how do you feel about that Jesus? That Jesus who's willing to stand up and say, this is not okay. This will not be tolerated anymore. We love the gentle, mild Jesus that's the little baby in the manger with the little glowy halo. We love seeing him stooping down in the dirt and healing people. We love seeing that. But guys, are you in love with the God who is righteous and just, who can't tolerate sin to continue on like he didn't in this instance? Well, my God would never get angry like that. Then your God is a false God. Because the one true God, sometimes we we, we make this this thing and say, well, how can he be compassionate and still get angry? It's his compassion that makes him angry. 
See, the most loving thing that God can do is point you to himself because he's the only object of worship in all of creation. So if you're doing anything that keeps you from worshiping him, the most loving and gracious thing God can do is stop that. As people are taking advantage of people in his name, the most loving thing he can do is drive them out of the temple and say, this is not what it's about. So it may seem unexpected to you that Jesus would get angry, but he did so because of his compassion and his mercy and his grace. By the way, aren't you glad for that? I mean, think about it. We, we look at people who've committed atrocities like Adolf Hitler, right? Don't you have a part of you that doesn't want Adolf Hitler to get off the hook, right? So if God's a compassionate God, he will right every single wrong. We like that when it's Adolf Hitler. We don't like it when it's us. But the reality is, you and I sin. You and I break God's law. You and I do what we shouldn't do. And that's where Jesus comes in and says, this is not okay. Now, our account does, kind of stops here this morning. But this is not the end of the story. There's a part of me that would be tempted to kind of leave it here, but I can't. Because see, Jesus is not done doing unexpected things. In fact, all week he's doing unexpected things, as you find. Curses a fig tree. Seems really random. He makes the Pharisees mad. He washes his disciples' feet. And then ultimately, on Friday, he's put to death. Now, this is not an instance, as it looks, of mob mentality where this angry mob joined together to have him crucified and some Roman official didn't have the backbone to stand up to the mob but instead washes his hands of the whole situation, lets Jesus be put on a cross. Yeah, that's what happened physically. But what you and I need to understand is behind all of this, and this is what we'll talk about Thursday, or excuse me, Friday night, is that Jesus was going to the cross not because an angry mob or a Roman governor put him there. He's going to the cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve for all the dumb things we've done, for every sin we've committed, for every time that we've been supposed to do something that we didn't do, for every thought that we've thought wrong. God was taking every single one of those on the cross, dying a horrific death. But the week wasn't over. You see, unexpectedly, when his disciples, after they had seen that he was dead, went into hiding, and then on early on Sunday morning, as the women who had followed him went to prepare his body for burial, they encountered one more unexpected thing, and that is that the tomb was empty because Jesus had been raised from the dead. Jesus had died for your sin and mine. That's what sin is all about. Sin ends in death. Jesus took sin to its end and died and came back again. Because as he rose from the dead, he showed that he had power over death itself and could give life in its place. 
This is the unexpected God that we're serving today. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, this is the God who's calling you to himself today. This is the God who had you tune into this message or had you come here today. Even though your friend may have invited you, this may have been the first time you've ever been in church. In those instances, God was bringing you so that you could hear and know that he loves you so much he would die for you and wants you to follow. If you're here today, though, and you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, this is the unexpected God we serve. Don't put him in a box. He's far better than you could imagine. He's far more gracious than you could imagine. He does far different things than you and I could ever come up with in our mind. We may never understand why he does what he does, but aren't you glad that God is big enough to do it? So this morning, I just want to end with some time for you to bow your head and close your eyes. As you bow your head and close your eyes this morning, I want to give you just a moment here to think about this God. This God who worked in unexpected ways, who who is more humble than we could imagine. This God who was so compassionate that he would weep in what should have been a moment of triumph, that he would weep over Jerusalem. This God who in his grace and in his mercy is also righteous enough to clear people out of the temple and say, this is not okay. This God who in his majesty and in his glory and in his goodness would go to the cross, die, be buried, and raised from the dead so that you could have life. He is the king He's coming back one day to set up shop in Jerusalem and we're looking forward to that time. But on that day when he came, his purpose was very different. Are you willing to follow that God? If this morning you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, we're gonna give you some time. I'm gonna be down front and I'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to follow him that way. So if you've got a question about that, if you want me to pray with you about it, I'd love to sit and talk with you. If, however, you're here this morning and you know that there's something else that God's doing in your heart where you've boxed him in and God's worked in some kind of unexpected way and you've not been happy about it, would you again surrender and say, God, you're in charge and I'm not. I'm gonna give this to you. If you wanna talk, if you wanna pray, I'll be down front. If not, you do business with God. Just take some time where you are with your head bowed and eyes closed. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a minute.